Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Happy Haven. We know it's been a while, so we thank you for joining us again. We are definitely going to get back on track. Um, life situations for both of us uh, precluded us from doing an episode for a little while, but we are back. And with me, as always, is... Dan, what's going on, guys? What's good? <laughs> not beautiful morning. It's not raining here in Oklahoma anymore, so I'm happy. It is also sunny and beautiful here in Atlanta after a week of thunderstorm Hades. Yep. Uh, today we have Brian Edward Hill on, the one and only uh, comic creator for Top Cow and Image. Uh, working on a book. Got a Kickstarter for a book called Golgotha. And he also writes for the movies and the TV things that we love. <laughs> There's a little bit of everything. So I am going to patch him in now, and we're going to get underway. Yay. How are you? All right. I had a Amazon about something uh, for like five minutes, so sorry about that. That's why I didn't take the call. I was been waging a one-man war with their logistics shipping unit this week. Um but they're waiting one down, and I will get my air fryer. <laughs> it will be mine. Oh, yeah. So what's going on, man? What's good? Oh, man. Um, comics. Comics and, and screenwriting and playing video games. That's pretty much been my existence for, I don't know, in the past, like, eight years. <laughs> So, in other words, the simplified answer is living the dream. <laughs> All right, right on. Then, yes. I mean, you know what? I, I am – my inner 13-year-old was very pleased with how my life turned out. Uh, they were a little worried, like, 10 years ago about how this was all going to go. But now my inner 13-year-old is very, very happy that this is my life. Awesome. Is this what you've always wanted to do then? I mean, have you always dreamed of writing for comics and – movies and all that stuff, or is there ever anything else? When I was in high school, I wanted to be an FBI agent. I, um, neat. Yeah, I, uh, I read Silence of the Lambs when I was in, like, sophomore year of high school, or freshman year of high school or something. Then I read Red Dragon, and I got obsessed with Thomas Harris. And I was like, okay, I'm going to catch serial killers. I'm going to enter the minds of serial killers and catch them <laughs> for the FBI. I had these hell fanciful dreams. So I met with a representative from Quantico uh, when I was like a junior in high school. Wow. And they started talking to me about actual FBI work, and it just sounded like paperwork. <laughs> and I'm like, ugh, that doesn't sound cool at all. Like, where's the Hannibal Lecter thing? Like, when, when do I catch the serial killers? Um, and they're like, no, 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 we'll, we'll probably just put you in, like, you know, in a process thing for a while, and you do this. It just sounds like a lot of bureaucracy. So I wound up not doing that. And I'm like, well, I like movies. Maybe I'll try to write movies. And that's all I got here. See, that's awesome. Now, what you can do is take, combine both experiences and make a movie about the real side of working in law enforcement. Just a dude toiling away at paperwork. And every time, like, the badass detective comes in and he's like, we got him. Your guy just gets exasperated because there's just a pile of paperwork coming for <laughs> every car that was flipped, 
every yeah. building that was burned down, every yeah, bullet like, that was shot. <laughs> that, the bullet thing is what really shocked me, that you have to file paperwork for every bullet you fired. Um, mm-hmm. Like Things like that I had no idea about. That, that's funny. That sounds like the, um, the next hit indie VR game. You know, paperwork cop, where you <laughs> sit at your desk and all of these cool cop characters walk past you, like doing cool cop character things, and you're just like opening a desk and filing and filling out forms. <laughs> Someone's complaining about a loud paper. Yeah, you're taking a statement from somebody like, my neighbor is so loud. Okay. <laughs> Instead of hit points, you just have an inner morale meter. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it, just, it just drains. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. It's just constantly draining. It's a stress ball. Yeah. It'll be a free bonus game when you pre-order Papers, Please, too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's you know, that was the deal with me. I um, uh, I didn't really stumble into this, but it definitely wasn't the first thing I wanted to do. I mean, I always love stories and movies, and, and um, you know, growing up, I was really interested in fiction. I didn't really consider myself a writer, honestly, until after film school. I went to film school, I went to NYU. So I thought I was going to be a director. You know, I was like, well, I'm going to direct films. I like, you know, I like movies. I'll try to make a movie. And I wrote a lot in college because writing was cheaper than doing anything else. Filmmaking was pretty expensive back then. This was before digital was everywhere. So it was about $1,000 a minute to shoot something. Yeah. And on top of tuition, uh, I just could not afford to make grand, grand student films. But writing was relatively inexpensive, I and mean, it was pretty free, honestly. So I just wrote a lot uh, and figured that at some point I would have to have the ability to generate my own script. I didn't know where a director would get a good script. You know, I didn't know what, where the good script pile was when you're <laughs> trying to make a film. And then all the directors that I admired, I noticed that they all wrote. Um, you know, Cameron, for instance, was a huge influence on me, still is. Uh, and you know, he wrote his own scripts, and I went to Coppola's work, and Coppola had done a lot of writing. You know, he'd won an Oscar for Patton uh, before he had done The Godfather. So you know, a lot of the filmmakers that I admired were generating their own material. Michael Mann, you know, for instance, he was a huge influence on me, especially when he came out. I, you know, I was in college at the time, and you know, that kind of changed the way I looked at character-driven storytelling. So it seemed to me that you had to write your own scripts if you were going to be a decent filmmaker. Hmm. Well, I mean, before Lucas went fully corrupt on his own franchise, he wrote Star Wars, and look at that, you know? Yeah, well, I think with Star Wars, it's interesting how when your perspective changes, the way you execute something you've created also changes, right? So, like, if you look at the 70s when he did Star Wars Episode Five. He was basically Luke Skywalker. You know, he was uh, a young guy, idealistic, had a mentor, actually literally in Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. helped that story, and then wrote Star Wars from uh, a very kind of experiential point of view. Then when you flash forward all the way to The Phantom Menace, you get a movie about taxation. And, <laughs> right. And, and shipping goods overseas. And I think that's kind of where his head was, being the guy in charge of this huge company. He was dealing with these, like, macroeconomic issues, and they sort of took Star, uh, Star, not Star Trek, Star Wars uh, over 
Uh, and he was so far, I think, mm-hmm. from where Anakin was, or even Obi-Wan was in Phantom Menace, that uh, the movie was a little dissonant from the franchise, but probably very much in sync with where his head was. Yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, you know what? That gives me a fresh perspective on that. I've, I've, it starts off like, I mean, the crawl is almost like taxes exclamation point. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> A body of government stalled on itself with inner fighting, and everybody's paying too much in taxes. Like, when you're doing a space opera and you have something called the Trade Federation, you might yeah. want to take a step and be like, what are they doing right now? What's happening right now? <laughs> I think yeah, it made the Star yeah. Wars Monopoly game make sense then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's Wars, Which I still have. It's from the POV of a business guy. It's, it's, a, it's a business guy's thinking about Star Wars um, and politics, but it's yeah. not particularly rooted in character. Um, although I do think that the prequel trilogy, well, I like Revenge of the Sith. I think Revenge of the Sith is, is, is okay. Um, you know, some spotty performance things here and there, but I think largely it adds to the franchise. Uh, Attack of the Clones, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. I, it's got... Things in it that you need to know, but it's not necessarily fun to watch. Like there's, it doesn't grab you very much. Uh, but I do no. think, like since the Clone Wars series and now Rebels, the prequel content has been redeemed. I think with the other stuff, to the point that it's like okay, I, it did fit in. It just wasn't executed particularly well. But when these other folks have gotten to it. Uh, and I believe Lucas is still somewhat involved with it. He's always been a better collaborator than he is a dictator. Uh, yeah. Right. Now that stuff is getting like, oh, this is kind of what this was supposed to be. I get it. Now Darth Maul is sort of more interesting than he was. Okay. So, you know, ultimately I think it's cool. It's just the movies on their own. Mm. Have you seen Rogue One yet? I have. Okay, I was going to say, probably the most redeeming fact in any movie that we've gotten, I know they burned the expanded universe that we loved Mm -hmm. for 20-something years and all that, but the most redeeming, one of the best callbacks in any franchise ever was I would like to buy a drink for the screenwriter in the writer's room who was like, I just came up with a genius way to explain how vulnerable the Death Star was not only that, but I'm going to make it poignant and meaningful. Right. Yeah. With the Mads, Mik- mm-hmm. Mads Mikkelsen character revealing that, that just that when Ursa was like, I gave it a giant vulnerability as a middle finger to the Empire. Right. Well, yeah, you look it at, was a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. And you look at everyone who picks on you for like, oh, yeah, Star Wars, you guys like that with the giant planet that one grenade can blow up. And you're like, you know what? We're vindicated, so screw you. <laughs> we finally have reasoning. Well, that was the, the the most interesting thing for me about Rogue One was how it really put the war movie stuff in the Star Wars universe in a film. Yes. You know, they never really feel like war films, even though they are kind of war movies. Uh, but Rogue One really had the grammar of the war film. You know, there, you know, it had this kind of. I suppose like. World War Two, you know, World War Two movies is kind of where they Star Wars draws from the most, um, with a little touch of Vietnam in there. Um, right. But, 
Yeah, I thought I thought that was uh, that was you know well deserved. Um, and for a movie where you know the ending going into it, they did a pretty remarkable job of keeping me at least interested in that. I do think that the transmedia nature of the Star Wars universe is wounding the storytelling a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. like I heard that there's this novel now that's going to be about Jen Erso from, uh, I guess, when Saul Guerrero uh, finds her and trains her up until we meet her again when she's an adult and we're one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but do and, we need that, though? Well, I, you know, you know? I, felt, I felt like we could have used some of that in the actual film. Yeah. Like, we... We see her as a kid, you know, she gets rescued by Forrest Whitaker, and then cut to uh, 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 over by Felicity Jones. Um, mm-hmm. and <laughs> <laughs> I like how the path there worked and you were working towards her name. In the first yeah, well, you know, I get her, Gemma Arditon, and the, mm-hmm. the actor playing the new Tomb Raider. I, I just get them all confused and think they're the same person. Dude, I didn't even know we had a new Tomb Raider. Yeah. Until like last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Gemma Arditon, Alicia Vikander, and Felicity Jones are like one person in my brain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we get, you know, we see her as an adult, and then, you know, my mom is like, here is your characterization so the audience knows what your abilities are. <laughs> right. <laughs> we could have seen some of this. That would have yeah. been cool. But yeah, I, I do I do like the film. Um and full disclosure, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of you know, like, Star Wars in general, so mm-hmm. I'm not as hypercritical about Star Wars as perhaps I should be. But, yeah, I dug it. The thing no, that I mean, like, me in trouble is being usually younger than a lot of people we talk to. Uh, I love the prequels, and people hate me for it. I, I don't know if it was because it was the first Star Wars movies I saw in theaters. I don't know if it was just the age I was when they came out. Okay, it's well, yeah, well, I mean, isn't the best thing ever. But, but see, I can understand that, because I remember seeing Jedi in the theater. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an 80s kid. I'm, I'm almost mm-hmm. 40, so I, I remember how big those spectacle movies were. I mean, yeah. people hate on Jurassic Park, or the first one, and that was probably that one of the most formative movies I, I'd ever seen. Um, it hit at the right time. I was about... Mm-hmm. Maybe ten or eleven. Um, every bit of extra money I had went to watching it in the two-screen movie theater in town where I lived in Massachusetts, and I probably saw that movie in the theater like seven times. So it, it's precious to me because of when it came out and what it meant. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's you know it's the way we consume media. Sometimes we'll confuse our feelings about ten years of fandom with how we felt when we saw one film one time, right? And we'll right. be like, well, this movie didn't live up to the feelings I've had about Star Wars for the past 25 years. And, you know, and sometimes that can, that can wound it a bit. It, it's interesting because I know, you know, you know, writing comics and screenplays, you know, I had a lot of folks, and Phantom Menace was like their first Star Wars thing, and they really kind of dug it, and they were kind of young when they saw it. And I can see that. You know, I mean, it does have, like, cartoon kind of logic, and... If you've been newly introduced to the universe, I think it's it's probably a you know a fun introduction. And Lucas does have good instincts. You know, I mean, the instinct mm-hmm. was well, we should have a character like Jar Jar. I don't know how well executed Jar Jar was, but the instinct was smart. Like, let's have like a gateway in, and we'll start Anakin when he's a kid, so that kids can have 
a character they can identify with, and they're going to kind of go on this harrowing journey with Anakin as he goes to the prequels. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue. It's a, it's a bit like Mass Effect Andromeda. I don't know if you guys play video games. But oh, yeah, we're huge gamers. <laughs> I, uh, so I, just, I just finished playing that, and no spoilers. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, I don't think it's as good as the previous Mass Effects, but I also don't think it deserves the flaming pitchforks it's getting right now. Like, yeah, it's getting it, tore up online. It's bad. And it's not, I mean, I just played Ghost Recon Wildlands, and that game is, I mean, as far as narrative goes, that game is stink garbage. Like, it's basically <laughs> Army of Two open world, where it's hey, just I loved Army dude of two. bro mechanics through the whole thing. It's, it, it's, essentially, it's Far Cry. Like, it's like mm-hmm. Far Cry with division mechanics, but no loot. Is that the way it works? Yeah, no, yeah, I played it for that, for that weekend that it was completely open, the full game. Yeah. And yeah, like, I, I've played, I love Far Cry, and I played the crap out of the division until I got bored with it. And yeah, very much I was like, oh, okay, Ubisoft, I see we don't go too far from the well yeah, any, anymore. It's not a terrible game, but on a writing end, it's pretty atrocious, and it's got some issues. Um, and I just got off playing that, which was a fairly shallow experience. It was like, let's get the cartels, yeehaw! You know, I was like, all right, I'll play this, whatever. <laughs> dude, and, bro, I shot that guy. Way cool, dude, bro. All right, dude, bro, let's go screw up these guys, bro. They're, they're yeah. not the most sympathetic human beings uh, no. that you can play with, no. you know. <laughs> They're like, man, you guys would like to come through the screen and put me in a locker, huh? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, coming off of that in the Mass Effect, I really, you know, I was like, this is kind of interesting. Um, but I think it's, you know, it, it came out after Zelda came out, and people are having this transcendent experience with Zelda. I'm playing it. I, I like it. I'm not, like, in love with it. But I think Oh, my God, dude. Like, people are treating that like it's, like, the new religion. Yeah, it's the second of Zelda game. Breath of the Wild is now uttered in, like, hushed tones. Yeah. Have you played it? Have I played what? Breath of the Wild. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, But it hasn't gotten its hooks into me uh, the way a lot of people have been, you know, really rabid about it. But I never played Zelda as a kid, so I have no nostalgia when it comes to Zelda. Maybe that's part uh, um, yeah. I'm just like, oh, okay, this is cool. Speaking I mean, it's definitely... Oh, oh, go ahead, Steps. Speaking of storytelling in games and upcoming games, I've got an interesting question. Destiny mm. was... I love the game Destiny, um, but it had no storyline to it. It was very hit and miss. And if you wanted the actual storyline to Destiny, you had to go to their website and read more. Bungie.net, you've unlocked a grimoire card. Exactly. But (laughs) Destiny 2 is coming out now, and at least the trailer gives me hope for maybe some semblance of a story. Yeah, Um, it's... I thought the Destiny thing was was weird. Like, I always assumed that there would be a series of novels or something, because there's always a series of novels. I mean, Mass Effect Andromeda has a novel tie-in, right? Right. I mean, look at how many Halo books there are out there, and that's pretty much all story already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the the way that they parse out story is very odd, Um, Mm -hmm. and it kind of kept me from enjoying the game as more than anything like a gameplay thing. Like, I like the gameplay. But I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing 
what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know why all these these aliens for names. I don't under you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's in the mm-hmm. face and it's got a flaming thing. It's probably bad. I feel okay about it. So yeah, yeah the, the 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 narrative presentation could have been better, which is weird because MMOs generally trade very hard on narrative, right? Like yeah. that's part of what right. MMOs do is make it cool for you to explore this place that they wrote about in this novel or comic book or something, and that gives you a little bit of a jolt. I'm hoping they get it better this time. Um, I'm hoping there's more planets this time. Yeah, uh, yeah. that would be a lot of fun for it to be a bigger experience than the last one. Yeah, I and I understand why they want to get rid of all your gear. I get it. But mm-hmm. I also hope that the early game gameplay is interesting so I don't just feel like I'm grinding through the same environments yeah. Just to get to an, a decent level with my character, you know, the the early game should be compelling. Otherwise, like, man, I'm not going to play old Russia for another eight hours so I can finally get to a place where I feel powerful. <laughs> but see, I've never understood that in games. Um, the whole like, well, here's your full suite of this, and then in the next game, they're always like, I think. Look, I love the God of War franchise very, very much. My <laughs> wife bought me a PS4 for my birthday because The Last of Us 2 and the new God of War got announced, and she was like, you have an Xbox, so you can't play it, so I'm going to fix that. And my wife, being awesome, bought me the PS4 for my birthday this year. Oh, that's mm-hmm. awesome. But Go God of War is probably one of the most guilty of, like, <laughs> here, at the end of the game, you are killing gods. Why? Because you have all this stuff, and it's all upgraded, and you are the man, and this is that. And then the next game, they're like, oh, well, one guy betrayed you and stabbed you in the stomach with a sword. So now you have nothing and you need to do it again. And then you overcome that and you come back and you defeat Zeus and you get all your stuff back. And then God of War 3, they're like, oh, well, Zeus is mad at you again, so he's going to throw you off a mountain. And then you're going to go in a river. <laughs> and the things in the river literally strip all your badassness away by touching you in the river. So now you're back, like, I've never guy, understood yeah. games that are like, no, instead of making a new suite of weapons for you to expand on your already awesome character, you're going to be whittled down to yeah. a five-year-old with an already half-broken stick. Have fun. But God of War loved to do it in this way where you started the game and had hope that you were going to be able to keep all your stuff. Because you had about five minutes where you were still the Kratos from the last game before they strip everything away and you're stuck there and you just sit there for five minutes and stare at the screen and go, all right, this again. I'm back to the beginning. Yeah, the the abilities, you know, uh, kind of structure, uh, T-E-A-S-E, T-E-A-S-E, part of gaming needs to be re-examined. It's it's because most gaming characters and sequels have the Wolverine problem, right? Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Wolverine has one story, and the story is, once upon a time, Wolverine didn't want to be Wolverine. Then, a bunch of shitty things happened to him. He thought about <laughs> being Wolverine again. Then, he cared about somebody. He decided he was going to be Wolverine again in the end. Right? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, the only Wolverine story we ever get. The only <laughs> re-upping your gear thing that didn't make sense to me ever is and I love the games. I've played all of them. I platinumed all of them. I got my 100%. Is all the Arkham games. You're freaking Batman. You're going to tell me that he drops down into Arkham Asylum in the first game 
where all of his villains are, and he brought, like, a spare set of keys and one batarang to start that with. And then, and then in Arkham City, you know, I mean, nobody notices the bat plane constantly dropping off these giant things that smash into rooftops that have, like, I don't know, one half upgrade item in them. He wouldn't call Alfred and be like, send my actual I-need-to-go-kick-ass suit. No, he sends a, hey, I need an extra batarang because there's like 20 villains I need to fight. So let's do this incrementally. Well, like, I love the Arkham games, but, and, you know, like, when you think about it, the, Ark, the uh, uh, Gotham City that they create in the Arkham games mm-hmm. seems like the most terrifying place to live in the, on Earth. I don't know why like, anybody right. lives there. I would why never would live it? in that place. But you got to hand it to the writers. They always found a way to explain the mass evacuation and, like, all. Yeah. Uh, after the first one, I mean, you're in the asylum in the first one. That one makes sense. It's guards, inmates, right. da-da-da. But, yeah, in Arkham City, I guess, you know, it's the walled-off part of old Gotham and da-da-da-da-da. But mm-hmm. Arkham Knight, I, I'd like to see. I'm sorry, but I watched Hurricane Katrina happen. I've watched natural disasters happen. You're going to tell me that they projected 26 million or 2.6 million or whatever million people evacuated in the time that the cop goes crazy in the diner and Scarecrow shows up on the TV like five minutes later, that within a day, that city that that is constantly under chaos and turmoil managed a multi-million person evacuation. They're just just so good at it. They they all go single file. They know how to do it. There's no chaos. It's just a normal everyday Wednesday to them. But why would you live there? Yeah, it's... Well, the the structure of those games... um, yeah, I think worked for a while. I heard they're going to make another one, and they are. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't. I'm, maybe you got to change something. Like the first game was cool because it was Metal Gear with Batman, right? Right, which is a cool idea, right? That's how you do it. If someone, you know, whoever's in the boardroom saying, "Hey, we should just make a Metal Gear game with Batman," that you know, give that person a raise. But you know, <laughs> and, and as they continue, they they opened up, and that was cool. But like another open world thing with the same rhythm based combat. I just think it's diminishing returns, really, at this point. Now, I personally liked Arkham Origins. I know a lot of people didn't. Um, I did. I thought the story was really interesting, and I, I just liked the... I, I liked how they gave Bruce this this characterization where he wasn't really mature enough to be Batman in Arkham right. Origins. You know, he has, mm-hmm. like, the issues he has with Alfred, uh, um, and he takes his aggression on Alfred a little bit in that game, and I just thought the, the interplay there was... It was interesting. Um, uh, they did more than they had to. But when it comes to the gameplay, you know, I, I loved the gameplay when I played it. I played so much of Arkham Origins. Like, I think I beat it and then kind of played through it halfway again. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if I want to, you know, jump up, press X, glide, tap, 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 <clears throat> like for another <laughs> 60 hours or something. Yeah, I, don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know. The, the one thing I'll, I'll give that game is... It's probably one of the better treatments to a licensed franchise ever. The amount of lore and accurate lore, you know, not just, oh, it's our take on it, so we're going to make up a bunch of stuff. But, like, they told a Batman story as well as anybody who's written Batman, you know, like, for the game. But, yes, the mechanics got very, very repetitive when you're, like, in the fourth game in. And I'm sorry, but when you kill the Joker... Can he not be the star of the next game? I love that part. 
sure, the dynamic was cool, but it didn't need to be so pervasive. I mean, the ending was great, where you you finally... Yeah, but I mean, I love the Joker as much as the next guy, but I've read Batman since I could read, and there's a lot of villains out there. there I are. mean, the, the, the coolest side story to me was the one where you were having in um, Arkham Knight, where you were having to find all the bodies. <laughs> I, I, I want to see... I like fireflies with all the arsons. Yeah, but I want to see Batman go after more of his... His more, I, I guess, viscerally violent, not just chaotically violent. Oh, yeah. I, I liked the investigations part of that, and then actually going after the butcher and whoever voiced him is amazing. Like stuff like that. I I I like the Zaz character. I don't want him mm-hmm. to be the oh yeah, that's the first guy that you auto knock out in every game as part of a tutorial. <laughs> right. Well, I think, I think it's the it's the shareholders thing, right? It's this mm-hmm. it's the desire. Yeah, we would like to get away from the Joker, but we also need this game to make a lot of money. And right. Mm-hmm. Would it sell it, without Hamill screaming through the whole thing? The 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 same problem I think Mass Andromeda Mass Effect Andromeda has is they wanted to do a new thing and they did, but they populated it with a lot of the old races from the previous games because right. I think they were scared of not having a Torian, not having a Krogan, not having yeah. an Asari, right? Like you, I know, is, but isn't it supposed to be a whole new galaxy, though? Like, Well, the, narratively, your, your game starts 600 years after Mass Effect 2 when a Milky Way expedition went to Andromeda to see if there was another galaxy that humanity, and I guess the rest of the the species in the Milky Way could populate. So you are in a totally new place, but you brought all your your family with you, basically, right? So you're in a new place, but you brought all the uh, the the folks from the Milky Way, mm-hmm. and in that sense, it can feel a little samey. In a way, it feels like if you were going to do a Mass Effect television show, that's mm-hmm. what you would probably do, where you'd have like a conceit that let you not deal with the original trilogy but right. you still have the same aliens. And if we were just watching this, I think people would probably be fine with it. But uh, if you're looking for the same kind of, oh, this is all new, this all feels very new, that you don't get. But, you know, when you spend $70 million on a video game and then another $30 million in marketing, they're not really trying to give you new. They want to give you same. Yeah, they want you to buy it. Right, but I mean, arguing that it's a new Mass Effect doesn't really work if it is an offshoot of the story you're playing. Because I mean, isn't it? Isn't it that they come in on the arcs, all the different races? The arcs was part of the original trilogy, so really you're just playing a fleshed-out side story. So people screaming for like new, 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 it's really not. It's a variant. Yeah, I think if you can make peace. You know, I, when it comes to, to games, uh, I, I try not to judge a game based on the game I wanted, but I, I just try to judge a game based on the game they gave me, right? Right. Like, and so um, I might have wanted different things from a Mass Effect sequel. I, I mean, I don't know. I never really thought about it. I was going to play it when it came out. But I think on its own terms, yes, the animations are wonky, you know, and yeah, there's some, <laughs> there's some bad writing in there. Uh, there's some good writing in there too, but there's a lot of stinky writing um, around the good writing. Um, so you have to kind of, you know, deal with the snarkiness. I think 
it's trying a little too hard to be Marvel toned and it comes off a little false uh, mm. sometimes, but there's some interesting ideas there and it's, it's worth playing structurally. It's got some fetch mission problems. It's got all the dragon age inquisition problems. You know, it's, you're the most important person in the universe. I need 12 screws, <laughs> right? You're going to save <laughs> us all. I need an hourglass. Go fetch it for me. <laughs> fetch it, peasant. <laughs> it's got that stuff. And then you yeah. fetch it, and then you bring it to them, and they're like, oh, thank you. I don't know where I would have found these screws. And then you get, like, 100 experience points. And there's a lot of, like, is that it? Is that all I get? Is that? So if you can bear with the weight of, of those flaws... I do think that there's an interesting experience to be had there. Um, oh, but, definitely. You know, um, just, you know, temper expectations, but with Horizon Zero Dawn being out there and Nier Autom- mm-hmm. Automata being out here and Zelda, there's just a lot of interesting games, and I think people were a little spoiled by all that. I need to play Horizon. Everybody I know who's played yeah, it is like, you really need to get in on this action, and Nier Automata is supposed to be amazing, too. When my wife was playing Horizon, I was watching her play it, and it's gorgeous. It's probably the best-looking game on the PS4, whether you're on a pro or you're just on a standard PS4. Um, and it looked really, really cool. Uh, I just picked up near uh, Automata um, uh, yesterday and started playing it, and I really dig that. Um, I, I didn't want to jump into Horizon after Mass Effect. That's just too much, like, AAA game, big, big-budget yeah. games for me. But Nier yeah. is great. The music in Nier is Awesome. If you if you like that kind of kind of you know moody anime Japanese female choir while you're blowing stuff up thing, it mm-hmm. does that really really well. Like if you were disappointed by Ghost in the Shell the film, then mm-hmm. play near and you'll get most of that back. Yeah, I don't understand the hate for that movie. I haven't seen it. But, I mean, I had my concerns in the trailer. Um, It looks like they added a lot of their own fiction to it. And if if you're going to give a live action of something that's that's beloved, stay to the material. We loved it for a reason. Nobody's asking you to rewrite it for us. Um, Well, I think the problem for them, and um, casting issues aside, because that's been talked about ad nauseum. the The whitewashing thing or whatever. Yeah, like the you know I'm not going to really get into that. Um, yeah. Although I do think it could have been cool to like break a new Japanese actress just because we haven't really broken new actors in like seven years, and I think exactly. Kind of, yeah, you know, I just get kind of bored with the same faces. You know, that mm-hmm. was that was like my kind of thing. It was like, oh man, like you know, it just sort of felt like you don't really care about this. You're just doing this in between your Marvel movies. Why not? I was going to say, oh cool? wow. Black Widow has a thermoptic camo suit in this movie. Yeah, yeah like we could have just found something uh, new and fresh. I'm sure there's a, a Japanese female actor out there who's awesome who does it. But like that aside, the problem with Ghost in the Shell is it's basically just a procedural. It's essentially a cop thing, right? With so it's cybernetics and AI on top of it. And in 1995, when the OVA came out, and I loved the OVA. None of those mm-hmm. issues were, were in fiction. The Matrix hadn't come out yet. We hadn't dealt with AI. We, know, we, were, we were still kind of working our way through those issues. Now, most of the elements of Ghost in the Shell have been woven into other things. You know, you right. had a whole, whole like Marvel thing where Tony Stark is making Jarvis, and Jarvis turns into Vision. And, you know. So I, I think it probably works better as like a television series. You know, I, I always thought that if Ghost in the Shell was 
an R-rated sci-fi action procedural on like Netflix or something, where it had a um, like a serialized sense of storytelling and was a, a bit more like standalone complex, but live action. That was I was going to say, yeah, they, I, I know, I know they did standalone. Yeah, like if they just did that live action, there's nothing else like that. Like that would be a singular experience. Right. But as a feature film that they're going to charge you, at least in L.A., 15 bucks to go see, I saw it. It's like, man, I don't know if this is enough movie for 15 bucks. I mean, it looks cool, but like everything looks cool. What doesn't look cool now? You know, everything right. has special effects. Everything has digital stuff going on. Everybody has eyes that glow red, and then the neon light happens when you pick up the coffee cup. It's all the same. So um, you're just left with what the basic story is, and it's like they made her a thing, and she doesn't want to be what they made her, so she Wolverine? And it's weird, like, Matoko Kusanagi never really had these big identity issues in the right. Like, mm-hmm. she occasionally thought about, I, I guess, like, what level her humanity was. Like, it wasn't so much, who was I, or all that. That wasn't really the issue. The issue was, is there enough human left of me to consider myself a human being? That right. was her. But it was, it was, who am I right now, not who did I used to be. So they fundamentally changed the character and made her navel-gazing in the live-action film in a way that the OVA never really did. I mean, what I liked about Kusanagi as a character was she was a shark. She was always moving forward. You know, yep. she's, she was going to just figure it out. And uh, when you undercut that by, you know, having a lot of this, I don't know who I used to be and I'm really upset about it, one, is pretty trite, you know, because whatever. But, uh-huh. you know, two, it's just not really... What the anime was, but yeah. adaptations, man. Uh, I've, I've written a couple adaptations uh, for people. They haven't been made, but I've been part of, like, those long list of writers that adapt things. And it's hard. You've got, Can you talk about any? Um, the no, Nerd in Me screams? Not, well, not specifically. Uh, well, I, I did do um, uh, a draft, like, eons ago uh, for Just Cause. Um, oh, nice. And, uh, and that was a pretty fun process. You know, the, uh, the, we, you know, we wanted to kind of keep the spirit of the fun and the thing with the franchise. And that was thing. I think it was more of figuring out like budget constraints and like what you're going to do here, what you're going to do there. So I did a, you know, a couple drafts in that. And then I think, um, you know, they startled from the beginning with uh, a whole different take on what the material should be. But that was an okay process. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I can't talk about the other stuff in specifics, but I've been on. Yeah, of course. Where, yeah, you've got nine different people in the room, and you got nine different opinions of what this thing is about. Yeah, that, like, oh, that sounds well, rough. It's hard to wrangle it all in. It's hard to wrangle it all down. And I'm kind of um, uh, what do they call it? Like uh, it's, it's like Neil Gorsuch in the Supreme Court. They call him like um, an originalist. Oh, <laughs> An originalist, right? So I'm kind of yeah. an originalist when it comes to adaptation. You know, uh-huh. I, I, I try to treat the source work like the Constitution. It's like, uh-huh. okay, there's a reason why this worked. So let us not stray far from this because clearly this works for people. And some producers appreciate that, but many, you know, don't because they want to tinker. And sometimes I just don't think tinkering is the best way to do it. Because that may be the best answer to anything I've ever yeah. heard. Steps will tell you that I am a constitutional conservative, which is not a um, not a far right 
uh, sure. buying follower. Um, if it regards um, sponsoring creativity, leaving people the heck alone, staying out of their pocket, and not limiting their freedoms to a bunch of licenses so they pay for the things that humans enjoyed before government existed for free. Um, so, yeah, I like that originalist. And if it's in there and it worked and it made things better, stop messing with it. Yeah, that's how I look at You know, you have to be humble to the legacy of something. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I know we all like to sort of, it's, it's, it's like these IPs, intellectual properties, are a bit like Play-Doh. They're, they're like clay. And they're molded a bit by everyone who touches them. This is true. But there's the instinct on the part of the adapter sometimes to mold it too much, to make sure that their mark endures in some way. It's a, it's a bit of the reason why I have problems with some of the recent uh, superhero films, um, you know, and some other things. Like, it's like, I, okay, you're not, that's not really the source material, and there's a reason why it works. Sometimes you just got to run the play. DCEU. <coughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, like, sometimes you just got to run the play. Like, Coach calls, pull back, dive, just run it. You know, just don't, just, just do it. <laughs> like, just recently. Yeah, the quit, yeah, quit, blue 42, no, no, no blue, no blue. No, no, no butterfly, just, just run the play. Um, what was it, Little Giants, when we were kids? What was the play, the annexation yeah. of Puerto Rico? <laughs> <laughs> that was the name um, of the play that won them yeah. the, the Miracle Game. That's right, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, so when it comes to adaptation stuff, I try to be uh, as close to the source as I can and yeah. not deviate just for the sake of deviation, just so I can be like, well, I made mine different. My, my my Batman is an alcoholic who's angry all the time. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, who kills man. the crap out of everyone. Yeah, man. Yeah. You do you, okay? <laughs> but that's just it. Like, did, did, did Zack Snyder not get the memo that they don't want um, just an extended version of The Watchmen? Yeah. For every... I mean, yeah, you did a great job with that movie, dude, but not every superhero movie needs to be full of constantly conflicted, oh, it sucks to have superpowers, everything in blacks and grays and muted colors, universe. Uh, he, like, seems like a, he seems like a guy that's very much rooted in adolescence. Mm-hmm. And he's like in this prolonged, I think he's like almost 50 years old, but he's in like this <laughs> prolonged teenage period. Uh, and it, 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 and I think like there's, there's a way that works if you can lightning in a bottle capture those feelings, because um, you know as you grow older, sometimes you temper and you forget what it's like to be an edge lord. You know, you forget what it's like to just be angsty, right? Angst isn't something that you might carry with you um, uh, mm-hmm. for a long time. So, an artist that can tap into that, I think, can really speak to people, um, uh, especially if they can do that with the rearview mirror maturity of having lived past those, those years. But, right. I mean, I went from Mohawk teenage punk to curmudgeon old man in like 20 <laughs> years. But- yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a real talent in being able to capture that feeling kind of honestly. Um, but the, the, crow. The, the crow, I think, is a good example of like, yeah, like there's a period in your life where you probably feel like the crow. Maybe you don't feel like that all the time. Maybe you don't feel like that now. 
but it you know it can definitely find you in the sweet spot of your of your angst ridden self. Um, oh my God! Talk about a movie coming out at the perfect time. Fourteen-year-old kid just learning how to be angry like a corn song, and that movie oh. comes out. And I was just like, all the yes. Who's on that soundtrack? Even more of all the yes. Cover my room in posters, you peasants. Buy me the thing with the yeah. sad, sad Brandon <laughs> Lee on it. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, yeah, I really, I mean, I, I was that kid too, man. I, I was really into that film uh, because you know you just want to break stuff for righteous mm-hmm. reasons sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I and, still do. Yeah, I think that's what uh, Snyder's trying to capture is that the sense that Batman is this guy that breaks stuff for the righteous reasons, but there's a, there's some pathos missing. I think the, the the problem for me is it has all of the the symbols of pathos, but no real exploration of emotion. Ex- right. It's not. It's it not looks like. It's there because they have they don't smile and the, the color palette's really muted and they talk in yeah. in, in, in whispers but and everybody's you know, sad yeah yeah the the interaction isn't really Aquaman doesn't feel look it. sad no no I'm Aquaman. sorry I'm sorry Aquaman I'm, looks like he is having a blast yeah but you know what <laughs> Aquaman having a dude bro moment riding on the Batmobile did not help to sell me at all on how I already felt. It sold me. (laughs) I liked it. It's the funny thing about Batman, right? Like the more that Batman stops being like in the shadows, family opera theatrical, the more silly it seems like he's dressed up like a bat and all his stuff looks like bats. So like I, I, right. I think it's fun to see the moment, but it's like the problem I have with the Dark Knight. And I love the Dark Knight, but I have a big problem with the Dark Knight. So there's the whole bank robbery scene in the beginning, you know, and then Batman and Commissioner Gordon are going to look at what happened to the vault. And Nolan's got Batman just standing there under a bright neon light, and he looks like Christian Bale in a bat suit. Like, he, he looks like cosplay. <laughs> and, like, why would Batman do that? Like, he would never just be like, I'm going to stand here under this light at noon. Like, and no, what was that? You Nobody wouldn't. thought, oh, voice modulator. No, they basically were like, here, kill your trachea. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's weird. Like, it's, it's, it, so Nolan's got a couple moments where I'm like, why is Batman fighting in broad daylight in a bat suit? Now he just looks silly. Um, well, that was like the end of Dark Knight Rises, where he's fighting Bane on like the city hall steps in broad daylight. And you're like, at like 1 p.m. Yeah. A, a scrap over a pretzel at Comic-Con. You're just like, this is... <laughs> Dude, he cut in front of me to get me hot H. I'm totally going to beat this guy sense. down. <laughs> and that is, I'm sorry, but you want to talk about wanting to leave your own indelible mark and people be like, well, let's do comic stuff, but we'll put realism in it. That translation of Bane as a character is a travesty. Well, it's not just that bad. I, I I forgive it because I lived through that Schumacher thing. <laughs> I was gonna no, say, yeah, no, we're talking about Christian Bale under neon lights, but at least he didn't have nipples and a credit card. You're gonna tell me that there's a credit card company that has Batman's personal information, and they weren't like, hey, you guys want to know who Batman is? He opened up a credit card as Batman. Yep. <laughs> I think Hardy's character is Hardy's character isn't really Bane, but 
I I did enjoy his performance, and I did like the character. Um, it, he made a great <laughs> villain, Batman. Um, <laughs> Every monologue with people just looking at each other in the movie theater, like, what the hell did he just say? <laughs> yeah, that that was the best part. Like, I, 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 you know, I enjoyed the movie for the most part, but I remember when mm-hmm. Bane is on the the squad car and he just like blew up Blackgate Prison. And he's like, I give it to you, the people. And I'm just like, I don't understand what he, he's ripping up a picture of Harvey. I guess he doesn't like Harvey Dent. And he's got some. He was just trying to get kicked off of Saturday Night Live, like Sinead O'Connor. But yeah, oh, I, I, uh, I thought, yeah, I thought he was, um, I liked Harvey's performance in the movie and I, I enjoyed it, but it was, it was markedly different than the history of the actual Bane. Um, and, and, and that's what I meant. Like, you know, talking to what we were talking about, about changing fiction to to leave your own mark. And, you know, that, that that's a big example of that. Like, oh, well, let's not have him be like this really cool, sinister, smart South American guy who can, you know. Uh, and now it's not Schumacher's Bane, which was just right. like, I'm a dumb, hmm. lobotomized idiot that a weirdly dressed Uma Thurman commands around. Yeah, that was rough, man. <laughs> that was hard to, to deal with right there. Joel Schumacher owes me eight bucks. He owes me. Yeah. yeah. He, owes, yeah. he owes the country an apology for that movie. <laughs> I see Joel Schumacher. I'm like, yo, man, I need my eight bucks back. For real. Like, you gotta that, get back. Batman and Robin may be one of the worst movies ever made. It's I just want to sit down with him and be like, at what point did you approve in the script? That they have built-in ice skates in their boots. See, that's the thing. Like, there, there are <laughs> movies that have issues, like you could say Dark Knight Rises has issues and all that. But I can see through multiple drafts, they think that this is working out perfectly, right? Right. Batman and Robin, at what point do you think that's good? Like, where do you think that's good? Who's the person that was like, yeah, this is all working out perfectly? No, it's not. It's not. It's all terrible. How could you not know this is all terrible? There's so many people involved in this process, and no one can say stop. I mean, Mr. Freeze is one of the best characters created for the Batman universe. His speeches, his backstory is so tragic. I mean, Mm -hmm. Batman the Animated Series won a frickin' Emmy off the Heart of Ice episode because they wrote him so well. What Mm -hmm. does Schumacher's Batman do? He breaks through a wall. Eyes to see you. No, that's not okay. Yeah, <laughs> that was really, really strange. I think it just turned into a let's hang out with all of the famous people of the moment sort of party, and oh, just stop version of it being game. a story. But let's put Alicia Silverstone in this, you know, because reasons. And reasons. Hey, people like Clueless, right? Yeah, they like her and Batman. Let's put her in, like, a tight suit, right? Like, that's what they want to see, so let's just do that. With a weird mouth. (laughs) He said her mouth was weird. (laughs) She talks like, I don't know, her lips move like the Ninja Turtle puppets from the original movie when she talks. She can't talk that bad. (laughs) She she looks like Corey Feldman's Donatello when she talks in any movie. Oh, no. No. Her lips move independently of the rest of her face. They're like nano-machine-controlled lips. (laughs) It weirds me out. Well, you didn't know that your biggest nightmare is to have to watch Clueless in a dark room alone. 
funny. Well, Alicia, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you know you know we love you. Uh, yeah. We don't yeah. we don't mean it personally. Big fans, big fans, big fans. They do. I believe yeah. you're an extraterrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> She's vegan. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe that's I, vegan. Mm. Veganism does makes you look more funny. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it makes right. you preachy too. So <laughs> to move on. <laughs> no. So I, I, love, I love you, Lisa Silverstone. No beef, you know. We I see do too. Beef. I'm just look. I, I, I eat coffee with Steph knows. Steph knows that I don't. My line is not where most decent people's line is. Yeah, but, so I live um, in LA, so I got to be careful because she could come get me. That's true. You get Nancy Kerrigan in the knee. Right, <laughs> I gotta be. So, I gotta be my good favorite. No beef, man. They can come get me here. Outside your car, doing the why, <laughs> why? <laughs> They're filming that here. Um, I actually yeah. took my my ten year old daughter to meet Margot Robbie. They're filming I Tanya here in Atlanta. Whoa, whoa, and, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa! There's a Nancy Kerrigan movie with Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie is playing Tanya Harding, dude. It's crazy because they made her. She does not look like Margot Robbie. She looks like Tanya Harding. It's kind of oh, off-putting at first. Margot it's Robbie amazing. Tanya Harding? Yes, and guess yeah. who plays her husband? Was it Jeff, him too. Jeff Galili was her, was her husband's name? Yeah, in the movie, Winter yeah. Soldier, Sebastian Stan is playing her husband. What is happening? Who is making this movie? This movie sounds insane. She is. Is it just like, is it like a... Is it like a comedy, or is it like a No, it's like a biopic. It's going into the theaters next year. This sounds bananas. It, it uh, me and my daughter spent a whole day at the shoot. Um, they were filming in Marietta, and it was kind of an open set because they were just in an office park. And is my daughter actually... Like, from what I understand, she was just, like, really jelly and then come up with this plan to hit Kerrigan in the knee with a wrench and then did it. Yeah, it's like a biopic about Tanya Harding, I guess, leading up to that or what was wow. going on before. And I, then don't, the I don't know after. if Tanya Harding's that interesting. But I don't know. I guess we'll find out. For Margot Look, Robbie? Like, you're Margot Robbie. You can do anything. Say, you slap that name on the marquee and people will go see it. What did you say her, her husband's name was in real life? Galili. Galili, I think? Mm-hmm. Okay. I pulled that name this out of the ancient vault. I haven't thought about that name in a long He looks like every dude busted for making Matthew seen on the news. That is not is it? inaccurate. <laughs> it is not. The director doing it is named Greg Galipsy. Oh. And then Galipsy, and Stephen uh, Rogers wrote it. Galipsy is generally a good director. I don't know. That's weird. Well, you know, Mar Robbie seems cool. Never matter, but she seems cool, so... You know, maybe it'll be all right. Um, That's okay. I'm foaming at the mouth right now. I want to get to that. Um, they're making a movie called The Last Full Measure. They're shooting all over the place here. Okay. And it's uh, Grant Gustin. So the oh, real cool. Barry Allen. Sorry, Ezra Miller. But the real Barry Allen's in town. Um, Christopher right. frickin' Plummer. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Um I mean, the cast is ridiculous, and they're, like, all over the place. And I'm like a little dope fiend trying to find out where they're filming. Because right now, for me, being as consumery and pop culture and nerdy as I am, Stranger Things is filming a half hour from me one way. Oh, that's um, awesome. Avengers is getting filmed in a giant open soundstage, and I'll send you both pictures. 
um, off air. Uh, they're filming that literally five minutes from my house. Uh, they took over this giant warehouse that's not really used. They built this Connex trailer city out behind it, and it's all these moving sound stages with cranes where they're moving all these Connexes that are blue-wrapped. And they're filming Avengers Infinity War like five minutes from my house right now. So, wow. um, yeah, I'm the, the, the nerd in me <laughs> is basically just like a junkie on the street looking like Tyrone Biggums from the Chappelle Show. Like, y'all know where them filming signs are at, Joe Rogan? That's like, funny. But filming is so boring sometimes. Though. Like, you know, like I, when, I, when I went to NYU and, I, and I, um, they're shooting everything in NYU all the time or in New York all the time, right. I was struck by just how boring watching shooting happens can often be. I remember one time I was a sort of broke college kid, right? So they have crap services set up. So a lot of times I would just sneak on the crap services and just steal food because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. It was cheaper than buying myself lunch. Um, So one time Sleepers is shooting in New York and I see their crap service table and I walk up there and I just grab like a slice of pizza uh, and I uh, turn around, and Brad Pitt is there. <laughs> and he's, like, like, drinking, like, I don't know, like a Coke or something. And he asked me some questions about, like, oh, hey, man, where'd you get the pizza? And I, I think I just said, like, Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best yes. answer ever. It sounds about right. Um, and then I pointed him in the way and then, like, walked off with my pizza, and Brad was there. It was weird. Uh, but, yeah. Um, sometimes <laughs> that, that was a fun day. It's a lot of times it's just like watching people wait. <laughs> yeah. I, I've noticed mm-hmm. that too. It's just like, for me, it's that, it's that chance to see something cool. Like when they filmed civil war, um, they did it at a place called the gully downtown. It's in between two buildings. It was a train track area that ran underneath the skyscrapers. And that's how they transported stuff into the buildings. Well, they don't use it anymore. Well, they turned that into Wakanda when they oh, were filming Civil cool. War. So I took my kids. I have two daughters. And my wife went one day, and then me and the girls went the next day. And we actually filmed. Uh, we watched. Well, we, we didn't film. We watched them film um, Captain America fight Crossbones. Oh, and wow. And we watched um, Black Widow. When she fights the two guys, she does that really cool, like, old... Lita take mm-hmm. down on the dude where she like scorpion grabs the neck and like does this crazy flip twist thing. Right. Yep. She's riding the motorcycle through all the shops and all that. Like we watch them do that. And that's why I like to go to sets. Cause there's always that off chance. You're going to be there the day that they're like, they, okay, they now, the pool, yeah. right. Everybody suit up and punch each other in the face for five hours over and over again to get it right. Like that day was, that's what got me addicted to going to shoots was seeing and my daughter, actually, my youngest, she actually got to have a a moment with Frank Grillo in his crossbone suit. Oh, that's awesome. Was he cool? He is the coolest guy. He seems like he'd be, like, a nice guy, you know? Chris like, Evans? Down, kind of down to earth. Chris Evans? Nope. Sits under an umbrella or sits in an SUV and doesn't really talk to anybody. Frank Grillo? <laughs> No stunt double, doing it all himself, out there waving to people, taking pictures, just being like the coolest guy ever. I'm yeah, not I hating think, on Chris Evans. I think, I think you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't worked with him, but I do know people that have worked with him. And they say that he is a really, really cool guy. But because he's with Chris Evans, he has to be very careful about 
how much of that he does because it'll just run away with itself. And he has to kind of pick and choose, you know, um, right. when he's going to be accessible. Otherwise, it, it can stop everything from going. It'll be a madhouse. I mean, right. plus fans screw it up. Like, I'm sure you heard they had a, the Walker Stalker convention no, um, where a fan thought it was okay to bite Norman Reedus. She paid for a photo op. And when they went to take the picture, she thought as a grown person, it was okay to bite Norman Reedus because it was Walking Dead related. Stuff like that screws it up for those of us who sit, ask permission on how far can I, how close can I get, where can we stand to watch. Um, you know, when you do see somebody, you wave, you don't like freak out and try to take a lock of their hair. Like stuff like that also <laughs> makes them very, very like leery. Like when we were watching the Civil War shoot, they let those of us who were on the ground watch as long as we stayed where the PA said to stay, but they had like local journalists and paparazzi. I'm not kidding. Like Spider-Man scaling the buildings around to try to get an overshot of the entire set. And like it became a big to do and they got real closed off, like real fast with everybody. So it's like, if you just act cool, you know, like how my daughter got to meet Margot Robbie I sat where the PA had his boundary and was just talking to him. Didn't try to schmooze. Didn't try just sat talking to him. He bummed a couple cigarettes off me because he couldn't leave the shoot to get a new pack of cigarettes. And that led to him being like, well, when Margot comes by, da-da-da, and my daughter got to be like, Harley Quinn. And, you know, Margot Robbie, like, waved at her and smiled. Like, it wasn't like we hung out, but, like, my daughter got a moment because I acted like a human being. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, and, you, know, you know, like, I, it's it's nice to hear that Margot would at least do that. Like, it's um, it, when when you play these characters that you know get a bunch of people into you, especially younger people. It's always disheartening when you find out the person playing it is kind of a bad person. You know, um, it's I understand that people have their time and their privacy and the rest of it, but when you're playing these characters, it's sort of symbolic of ethics. And you would right. you would hope that you know the people would recognize they have like something of a younger fan base and and um, you know they would be a little bit more friendly or patient as long as everything was safe you know you'd hate to bump into someone that you admire and then you know yeah terrible experience and it ruins your whole experience mm-hmm. of the thing when and they solidify that never meet your heroes thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit yeah. like being a politician, being an actor, I would imagine, in situations like that. You know, I mean, part of it is, I guess you could say, well, I'm a performer and that's not my job, but, you know, that's also kind of part of it, too. It's uh, So it's a weird thing. Um, but, yeah, uh, uh, it's great to hear that she's cool. She seems like she'd be cool. She was. she was. She was very, very, like, sweet about it. And, like I said, it wasn't a long interaction, but at least she acknowledged, you know, my daughter and smiled and waved and... You know, and they were going from one thing to another uh, driving, mm-hmm. so she did slow down enough for my daughter to be like, hey, and she smiled and waved at her, and you know what? And that was enough for, you know, my, my daughter turned around and looked at me like, I just talked to Harley Quinn. Like, she didn't care that right. she didn't yeah. get a picture and an autograph and her phone number and, you know, a dinner date. She was just like, holy crap, <laughs> like, I got to say hi to Harley Quinn, and she said hi back. Like, that made her weak. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was funny. Like, one day I was in the elevator. I was t- taking a meeting with some producer uh, here in Los Angeles, and I was in an elevator with Nathan Fillion. <gasps> and 
he was really shitty to me. And I no. guess he was having a bad day or something. I don't know what the deal was. But uh, I didn't even really talk to him. Like, he just got in the elevator. And, you know, you, like, kind of check in. And, uh, you know, you sort of look like, oh, that's Nathan Fillion. And, you know, I think I just said something like, you know, like, you know, you know hey, man, how you doing? And I don't remember what he said. But it was, like, some really grumpy, gruff, angry thing. And I'm like, oh, that's a bummer. Nathan Fillion's a dick. Uh, but, <laughs> I know the hammer not. is my ego. Yeah, I know he's not really. So I guess I just caught him on a bad day. I suppose, <laughs> but it must right. be a real bad day because he was not cool. Like this Instagram guy that like Mark Bernardin hangs out with, and he's always friendly and self-referential mm-hmm. and all that. That is not the dude I got. I got a guy who looked like he wanted to put everyone in detention or something. He looked, I mean, he was like <laughs> the bad guy in the breakfast club in that elevator. I don't know what was going on. No, there. see, I like Mark Bernardin. I love that you brought that name up. His, yeah. uh, his his stuff on Fat Man on Batman with Kevin Smith is, I love that dude. Yeah, I told Mark, I was like, I don't know which Nathan Fillion I got. I guess I got, you know, Two-Face. You talk to Harvey. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got the you got the Yellow Lantern Sinestro. He gets yeah, the Yeah, I did get yeah. the Yellow Lantern Sinestro, man. I was like, man, that was a bummer. <laughs> that, it was more like, because everyone talks about how cool he was. And I'm like, oh, Nathan Fillion. I'm going to have this cool Nathan Fillion experience. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, look, I could nerd ramble all day yeah, on this, sure. but I want to. I mean, we have you on as a guest, so I want yeah, to focus talk, back uh, on and stuff. <laughs> yeah, back on, back on to you. Now that we've, now that we've run the gamut of all the things <laughs> with Nathan Philly and Alicia Silverstone. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, that, yeah. Now, now, now that we'll never get them on. The, right, now they're coming to get us. No. People be like, hey, Alicia, uh, Happy Haven Podcast was wanting to reach out. Oh, really? Nanorobots in my lips, people? No, thank you. I look like a Ninja Turtle from the 90s. Right. But I did see, um, and I'm definitely, I am getting on board as a backer. Um, and anybody who's listening who loves comics, I strongly encourage. I saw the Kickstarter for Golgotha, man. So I want to oh. get that out there. Oh, right on. Well, for, for folks listening, uh, one, if you don't know, I write comic books. I write a book called Postal for Top Cow. I've also, uh, I also mm-hmm. write a book called Romulus. I did a, uh, a one shot, uh, for Marvel about the Hulk, and I've got some other comic book things going. I'm also a screenwriter and a TV writer. I just came off of season three of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Oh. Uh, so, like, that's the kind of things I do. So Golgotha is a science fiction, like character-driven science fiction story that um, Matt Hawkins, the president of Top Cow, wanted to do directly with fans. I guess he'd had a really great experience just finishing a trade uh, paperback or hardcover, I think, yeah, um, and then just using a Kickstarter to just bridge it directly to fans before it hits the direct market. Uh, and he, he liked that a lot. I think the fans liked it a lot. And so he approached me about, hey, do you want to do – something like this, you know, for our 25th anniversary, do you want to do like this cool sci-fi story I've got? Uh, and he shared the story with me. And then the basic like elevator pitch is it's about uh, man's first mission of colonization. Um, but the problem for them is while they're in cryogenic sleep headed towards this new planet, Achilles prime to colonize it, uh, colonize it. Earth has increased its technology 
So the second expedition arrives before the first one does. Huh. So these folks think that they're going to get to a world that is barren or at least empty and waiting to be populated. But instead, they find a thriving colony with technology better than what they had before, uh, filled with, uh, with historical knowledge that they don't have. And the people that thought they were tip of the spear of human culture now find themselves obsolete. And how do they deal with that? And the planet has secrets and little character twists. Not really a twist, kind of part of the concept. The person running the colony is actually the great-grandson or the grandson of the hero that was on the first expedition. And so even though the person running the colony looks like an old man, he's actually the grandson of our hero who looks like a younger man. So there's a little bit of family drama in there, too. Uh, and you've got some kinetic action stuff, some interesting ideas. I, I'd say if you're a fan of Ridley Scott's sci-fi, if you're a fan of Mass Effect, uh, if you're like into kind of thoughtful science fiction, you can check it out. The art's by Yuki Seki. She's great. Wow. I'm new to the game, but she's um, a really cool artist. Brian Valenza did the colors for it. I just wrote the script uh, and um, worked with Matt on that, and it's Matt's concept. So, yeah, the Kickstarter link is available now. I think it's up somewhere. Um, go check it out. We've been on a lot of support so far, and I'm really happy to see that. I think it's a cool book. And, look, I would not tell people – to back something if I didn't think it was worth your money. One of the things that I always say is you got to make sure you don't waste people's money. I tell people every time about my single issues, I must write an issue that's better than the sandwich. Because if it's not better than the sandwich, then you should spend that five bucks somewhere else. Um, so value is important. I think it's a cool value and some bonuses that are there too. So you guys should check it out. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I read the synopsis. So I just wanted you to explain it. I mean, it, it sounded really cool to me, so that's why I'm definitely willing to jump on board. That's my kind of thing, especially, like you said, the Ridley Scott science fiction. Um, yeah, we don't get a lot of that. You know, you think that No, we don't, and it's way smarter than yeah. most of the stuff we get. No, a lot of the science fiction just – I mean, I love kinetic stuff, and we have some kinetic action in there, too. But you would think now that we would get more books like, you know, films like Sunshine and those kind of things. Like those oh, are man. We don't get a lot of those, uh, so this was, um, you know, kind of my desire to put something into that genre space. Heck yeah. yeah! So I'm a huge history nerd, and I love history. So the name catches me. Oh yeah. Well, one of the things of the story is it's really about the future of humanity, humanity's place mm -hmm. in the universe. And the the possible sacrifice that humanity is going to have to make in order to place itself into like the future, and so oh, okay. you know Golgotha being the mountain of the skull, where mm -hmm. uh, you know Christ is crucified uh, in um, you know in biblical times, I wanted to kind of echo the fulcrum moment mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. of of history, you know, with the title. Yeah without being too overt uh, uh, about it. But, yeah, I mean, we kind of look at the book like this is a fulcrum point of humanity, where uh, oh, okay. humanity is kind of going through its, its end of the second act and what, what will it emerge as and how will it be kind of resurrected from the experience of the story and all of that. So, yeah, I'm pretending. Wow. That's a, no, Absolutely. dude, that's a genius reference. Because, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I am a believer. Um, you know, uh, I think the religious right has kind of hijacked um, and kind of almost destroyed what true discipleship 
means. Um, it's all grace, love, and redemption. It's not setting policy, condemnation, and judgmentalism. So when I saw the thing Golgotha, originally I was like, holy cow, is somebody going to make that into it? And then I read it, and I was like, okay, well, no, I still want to read it. But, yeah, like that name stuck out well, like so hard. So I love that. one of those things where if, if someone isn't particular, I mean, I'm not – particularly religious. I mean, I studied uh, a lot of religions, but... Um, See, I don't I, like religion. I don't. Right. I, yeah. I don't know how pious I am or anything, but, you know, I wanted to put something in there so that people who would recognize it would really recognize it, and it would be a flair for them. But other people who might not know what that word means would be like, oh, that just sounds like a cool word. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, let me say, then, it works, because yeah, that flair is what got me to, to open up mm -hmm. the thing on the Kickstarter and really read it. And then after I read the description... I kind of saw where you were coming from with it, and then when you fully explained it, I was like, oh, heck yeah, I'm on board with that. The character, David, um, who runs the colony, uh, is a Christian in the story, and he, well, he would consider himself a Christian. I don't really know how, how much of a Christian he actually is in practice, but one of the issues, I guess the subplots of the story is how faith um, uh, kind of works, you know, uh, uh, in this place and the, the, how politics can affect faith and how technology can affect it all. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's woven in there. I, I wouldn't say that it is, like, a front-forward kind of thing. It's kind of woven right. narrative symbolically and thematically, but hopefully people will find the ideas interesting and want to talk about them a little bit. I mean, that's always the goal. Exactly. Yeah. So um, you said something that uh, made me – Squee a little bit. Um, that Ash versus Evil Dead thing. Oh yeah. Can you talk about that? Because <laughs> sure. Um, a very young, gnarly canary saw a movie called The Evil Dead, and um, <laughs> it changed his life fundamentally on how movies can be made. Yeah, it can um, do that. So um, that has been Evil Dead has been one of my and my wife doesn't get it. She'll watch him with me, but she just looks at me like, why do you love this so much? And I can't really explain it. <laughs> yeah, I get the same looks, too. My wife hates the evil man. I love it. Yeah, um, well, that happened because comics, really. Uh, so Mark Verheiden, the showrunner of season three, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess he bumped into my work. I've written a couple pilots that have been floating around there, and I, you know, I, I write comics in Postal. My book Postal uh, got picked up by Hulu to be a show, so that what? Kind of got me on the. Yeah, we announced that like like last year or something. They're developing right now, and uh, I read the pilot script. It's it's pretty good, dude. That's um, freaking awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. Like it should be it should be a fun thing. You know, I mean, you know, it's uh, a lot of moving parts, and you know, you gotta kind of wait for like cast to come in and everything to kind of come together. But yeah, it, it looks like it's it should be a, a really cool thing, and that kind of put me on the television radar. Um, mm -hmm. and Mark, who had written, you know, Verheiden has written a lot of comics too. He wrote like a bunch of alien stuff for Dark Horse and Superman, Batman mm -hmm. stuff back in the day. So mm -hmm. he knows the comic book genre super well. And he's also a veteran of, of genre in general. He worked, worked on Constantine, that series, uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica, won a Peabody for some of his work there. So, oh, wow. uh, and he read some of my stuff and liked it and said, Hey, you know, do you want to work on, you know, this, this show? And I was like, a meeting I had on a Friday and then on Monday I was in the writer's room. It happened really fast. Um, and it was, you know, it's fun. It's, uh, it, 
it's really crazy to be working on this thing that uh, you kind of grew up watching. And you don't even realize that you have a lot of opinions and emotional investment into you. Because I never really sat back and thought of, like, Evil Dead stories. But when you're in the room and you're talking to people, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm kind of invested into this a little bit. Hmm. Uh, it was it was a great experience. Ivan Rainey was in the room with us, and he's awesome. Wow. So he told us, like, Darkman stories, because I kept bugging him about, why don't you make Darkman a thing, like a series? <laughs> right? Netflix. <laughs> Netflix could do a series. Hulu could do a series. And he was like, well, how do you make a television show where the actor's face is never shown? And I was like, well, Ivan Rainey, you'll figure it out. You're a genius. Um, exactly. So, so yeah, it, it was cool. And I met Lucy Wallace. That was awesome. Uh, wow. Yeah, her eyes are that blue, and she is that tall. She's very cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, I was, like, sitting in my little, you know, my little writer's room hovel thing, and, and she's over by the snack mm-hmm. bar, and, I'm, and I hear this, like, beautiful New Zealand accent. I look over, and Lucy Lawless is eating pretzels right there. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's cool. This was a cool day at work. <laughs> is she constantly cast in the light that flows from her that I picture? She's just awesome. Like you know, that's what I mean. Yeah, like, <laughs> like she has that kind of old school. I mean, I you know, I I never met like these old school like golden age actors, but she definitely has like that kind of glow that you would imagine like a Rita Hayworth or somebody would have. Mm-hmm. You know, like exactly. She just has that yeah. like swagger. Uh, Linda Carter in her heyday. Right, yeah, like back when like you know. We've 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 kind of overshared celebrity in a lot of ways, and so oh goodness, yes. the specialness of that is, is a little gone. Uh, but yeah, she kind of feels like, oh yeah, you're you're like an actor, you know, you're you're a, mm. you're an actor that lights up the screen. You're really charismatic, you know, you got talent. She was cool. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. The uh, can't really go into the details of the season because Mark would kill me. But he's doing some really, really cool things um, with the franchise, and I've seen some of the stuff that has been shot for season three. I don't know when it premieres, um, but yeah, it should be a really, really interesting ride. I think I am the eighth episode of season three, 308, so you know, jot that down. That's the one that um, has most of my work in it. But it was a great experience, um, for sure. You know, it, it certainly, like, I never really had TV as a goal. Uh, mm-hmm. But after working in the writer's room, I dug it. I like TV. Um, so I recently wrote another pilot. I'm getting ready to shop that around and see if I can find that at home. Um, and I'm talking to some other shows about working on them, but I haven't narrowed it down yet. I mean, I have a pretty dense schedule with comics and screenwriting, so yeah. I have to be a little judicious about it because it's hard to do TV and do anything else at the same time. Uh, yeah. But Tom Taylor will tell you that, you know, like he um, he's worked in both forms. Bernard has done both. He's working on Castle mm-hmm. Rock for JJ. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it can be all encompassing. Uh, but I do, yeah, I dug it. It was it was really cool. That's awesome. So yeah, you've you've done other movies. I know. I saw um, when I was looking stuff up because I, I I knew your work in comics. And I saw the Evil Dead thing on the Twitter bio, so I put it all together and was like, lots of the things to talk about. But I saw the that one of the biggest things was um, you got to work with He-Man. Oh, or, Lord have mercy. Okay. Or my He-Man. Yeah, this, um, is, this is way back in the day. This is like a year out of film school, right? So, um, it's still Dolph Lundgren, dude. He is awesome today. So, so, like all film students, I wrote a bunch of terrible scripts. And... One of them that was least terrible uh, among them floated around Hollywood. 
a little bit. And I, I optioned it, which means you get like a kind of a low money payment and someone yeah. might make a movie that you look like. So I'd done that. Uh, and so this script had gotten to Dolph Lundgren, I guess. So one day I get a call and it's like from my manager at the time. He's like, hey, Dolph Lundgren read your script and wants to talk to you about it. Uh, are you cool? And I was like, you mean like Dolph Lundgren, Dolph Lundgren, or like some other dude named Dolph Lundgren? <laughs> right. <laughs> are you talking like, you know, if he dies, he dies? Like, Dolph Lundgren? <laughs> like, are you calling me like noon reading something I wrote? Like, <laughs> right. like that's, you got to like prep a guy for that. So uh, I was like, yeah. I get a phone call like 40 minutes later, like, hello, Brian, this is Dolph. I read your script. I thought it was very good. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is so surreal. This is the most surreal thing in the world. So me being like a, you know, <laughs> 26-year-old asshole, I put Dolph on speakerphone so my other friends can hear. Um, right. So I have all my friends that are around me, like, kind of covering their mouths as Dolph was talking. It was, and it was, it was neat. I mean, the, the movie that resulted from that is not great. It's called The Russian Specialist. I wrote it in three days. Uh, it's, um, it's kind of a fever dream of a script. See, I'd worked with Dolph for about a month living in Spain. Uh, where he had his house at the time. Dang. I think he's moved to L.A. now, but um, I lived in like a little resort kind of close to his house and worked on the script uh, with him. And we'd written a script that I thought was kind of interesting. I was a, uh, this was around the time, like, Narc, I think, had come out. So I was obsessed with that movie. Um, right? Yes, Patrick Ray Liotta picture, <laughs> Carnahan picture. I love that picture. And uh, I was like, well, we're going to do, like, this French Connection thing in Russia, it's going to be, like, really cool. And he was really into it. He's got a really great film history. He's a super bright guy. He's like a Mensa guy or something. Yeah, he's, he's got, like, PhDs and, uh, yeah, like, yeah, people who are like, you know, oh, like, what, what, the, what the Third Reich was trying to do was him, you know? <laughs> like, that was the plan. It was, like, a million you know? Um, luckily, he's a good guy, which is, you know, that's great for the world. Is he that uh, big in real life? He's huge. Okay, I thought he's so. Huge. Yeah, I mean, he's huge. He's a monster. He's like, you wonder, you wonder like, how, how, how a child turns into that. He's that big. You know, <laughs> looking at him and being like, you were never an infant. You had to be born four feet tall. Like, right. that in a human lifespan, <laughs> you, you start as a baby and you turn into Dolph Lundgren. I refuse to believe it. Um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I went to high school. I took some science classes. This is impossible. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, we worked, like, you know, on, on the script, and there was going to be this whole, like, thing, kind of gritty action and drama. Uh, and then everyone was fine with the script. Dolph asked me if I'd go to Bulgaria where they were shooting to kind of just be around. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I go to Bulgaria and I arrive on Friday. And then Dolph tells me that, uh, they have to get rid of the script we wrote and we need a new script by Monday. <laughs> now, like a new screenplay, like a whole, like 115 pages of screenplay. Well, that's how that works, right? I, I suppose. So they gave me, like, a, a bullet point list of things that had to happen. <laughs> things like, blow up. Yeah, like a van needs to explode. We need to, like, drive through some glass. There has to be a nightclub. Like, I got this bullet, like, this, like, Madeline. So I just got this, like, these little parts. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, so you like, just kind of fit them into your story. Like, turn the script into parts. I was, you know, turn these parts into a script. So I, I did. I mean, Dolph. 
got me like a pallet of Red Bull. And I was in this hotel room in Bulgaria. I think by like the second day of writing, I was completely paranoid. I was like a Nicolas Cage character from 1997. Like I was out of my mind. I thought at some point someone was coming to get me in the hotel room. So I was in the closet with a steak knife for like an hour. It was dark times in Bulgaria. Were you like face off Nicolas Cage for like when you finally yeah. finished the screenplay, you stabbed it with a pen and you were like, die. <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't like Cage. You know the beauty of that one word line and his delivery, and it just that crazy. Oh yeah, no one can add syllables like Nick Cage. Oh my god. Okay, uh, so so you, you got, finished the. It's so I finished the script. So I finished it on, on Sunday night, and they were shooting it on Monday. Jesus. Oh man, yeah. it is terrible. But you know, yeah, he's what do you want? <laughs> Do you ever Dang. wonder if, like, he had the conversation with the director, like, after you walked away, and he was like, do you think that writer you brought over from America is going to be okay? And he did the, if he dies, he dies. Golf <laughs> <laughs> is actually great, and he was great throughout the whole thing. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's the reality of making those, like, direct-to-video uh, mm -hmm. European shot action films. And he directed the movie, and for oh, wow. Weak material. He, you know, he did some stuff with it. I mean, there's people like the movie. It's a weird thing. It's like this obscure thing that I did way back in the day. But occasionally, I'll be at a convention signing books, and like someone will bring a copy of it, and it's like, you bought this like on purpose? That's amazing. Like, <laughs> like that's dude, cool. there are still Fantastic. people who watch Night of the Comet yearly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I get emails from people that are like part of like you know Dolph Lundgren message boards, and they want to talk about the film or something. I still do that. Like, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I just wish it would have been a little better, you know. Uh, but mm -hmm. but yeah, it was cool. Um, I still see Dolph from time to time. You know, usually he and I will grab like a coffee or something once a year. Oh, that's uh, so cool, dude. Uh, now, he, he's an LMA, so um, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I might do something again with him in the future. I've been trying to get him to want to do a TV show for a while. Um, I know he's been appearing on Arrow, but I'm trying to get him to actually, like, just do one. Um, yeah, he's actually so. pretty – he plays a pretty cool uh, Russian mobster on Arrow. His The last episode he was on, he uh, tried to, like, sarin gas an entire room full of people. It was kind of crazy. Like, yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> he's sort of a funny guy. Like, there's – like, I guess the closest thing to his personality is the dude he plays in The Expendables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, that's mm -hmm. kind of, like, how he is, you know? I think that's why Stallone did the movie. Stallone was just like, I'm going to do a movie. Everybody gets to be themselves, okay? Except so, for Bruce Willis, because he's being selfish and greedy. <laughs> I mean, he might be being himself. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I say, maybe he still is being himself. I don't you like rich know. Bruce Willis in movies. Like, I... I, I'm Rich Bruce Willis in real life is is I mean I met him a long time ago at NYU because uh, he was like it was like back in like you know like the when he was still kind of hanging around New York and he was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, mm. But in movies, I like Bruce Willis to not be rich. Bruce Willis is always better when he's playing a guy who's not rich. The moment you like give him a character where he's a rich guy, ugh, he like does the Bruce Willis rich guy thing where he like puts his hands in front of his of himself and like kind of cocks one eyebrow and you're like, oh, I don't like Rich Bruce Willis. Right, exactly. Like working class Bruce Willis. Like, why can't you just be John McClane in everything? Or in Die Hard. <laughs> or in Die Hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, 
After that, How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. love to see John McClane in Die Hard again. That'd be really cool. Yeah, I haven't even I haven't seen Past with a Vengeance. Oh, well, you're good. That's what I figured. You're good. Just you're like good. I didn't see the last Lethal Weapon movie, I saw it up to three. Oh yeah, the little Jet Li. No, see, I didn't see that one. Yeah, no, wait, was was that in three? That's that's four. Four is Jet Li. Three is the one okay. with the uh, shredder bullets, and yes. and the um the mustache guy who gets killed like with the bullwars of Dozer in the house thing. Um, ah, with the mustache. Yeah, he's he's with Stuart Wilson, I think, of the actor's name. Kind of a weird villain. Yeah, that um, was the last one I watched because I was like, oh, these are devolving rapidly. Lethal Weapon Four <laughs> is a solid action comedy that's not really a lethal weapon. That's what, yeah. That that's what but I was thinking. Still, it's watchable. Now I cannot say the same for the follow up Die Hard films, which are oof, live boy. free or die hard. <laughs> that just sounds like something you'd see on like a <laughs> semi with a Make America Great Again and uh, you know Joe's barbecue and ribs Merca sticker on it. Like, <laughs> look, hey, look. I love the Second Amendment, here. and I love the Constitution, and, you know, but there, there's a point. There, there's just, there's a point where there's, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just hard to, to keep putting John McClane in situations where terrorists are everywhere. Right? <laughs> that's, not, it, that's not like a weather thing where it's like, oh, it's raining again. Um, so... If I was out to eat with my family and I saw John McClane walking to the restaurant, I'd just look and be like, hey, guess what? We're all dead. We're dead now. We're dead. Except the black guy. If he's funny, he'll live. <laughs> if, he's, if he's funny, The serious he black die. guy is dead as a doornail. But the funny black guy will at least survive until the third act. That is true. <laughs> Don't be the serious black guy in a Bruce Willis movie because you are not long for this earth. I don't know. Carl Winslow did okay. But he was like kind of like you know like like charming like serious sort of funny happy funny. It's like don't be the guy that like comes in with like the steel jaw and says something stern because you are not going to make it. And I did call him Carl Winslow. I am very much expecting Reginald Vell Johnson to show up at my house and just nut kick me for that one. I think he probably gets ten bucks every time somebody says Carl Winslow, so he's probably. <laughs> <happy>. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Carl Winslow. There's another two bucks for you. Yeah, I always wanted to see a buddy comedy with him and James Avery. As mm. their characters, like, some crazy sitcom scenario where Carl Winslow... Um, Not Netflix, you're 15. This is the phase four of the Netflix thing where it's like, what else can we do? Well, All we right, can so Carl Winslow. Uncle Phil Carl Winslow in a show. <laughs> There's a horrible accident, and the Winslow family is wiped out in Chicago. Carl Winslow, struggling to find himself, moves into a trailer in California. Uncle Phil was caught being a corrupt judge and lost everything. Finds himself needing a roommate in his trailer in an obscure trailer park in California. So now you have Uncle Phil and Carl Winslow together. Action. See, oh, this is good. If, that, if that had a script, I would actually, I'd probably watch that, man. Like that Heck would, be yeah. Awesome. Like that would, that people would, people would dig that. People would dig that. You could have Jaleel White show up every once in a while, searching. 
for Carl Winslow, like trying to tell him that the Winslows did make it and it was all like a big lie. So you can yeah. try to make like oh. Urkel a straight man character. Like, oh, yeah, he really special need agent to find... Urkel. Yes! Why is that not a show? Special Agent Urkel. He'd be like Elliot Ness, man. He'd, like, he'd still be like geeky, but he's like actually kind of shredded underneath everything. <laughs> exactly. Okay, okay. So here's the thing, right? So Stefan yeah. Urkel. Yes. yes. Stefan Urkel became an agent, <laughs> right? But was killed in the field. But he was so loved and respected as an agent that they cloned his DNA. But what came back was Urkel separated from the Urkel personality. But it's oh, wow. kind of like Bowfinger where they need to make him Stefan Urkel in public, right? So, like, he stays in the Stefan until the end of every episode. And then on a helicopter with a building exploding full of bad guys in the background, he dips his head out of the Black Hawk and finally breaks Stefan character, looks at the camera, winks, and all you hear is, did I no. do that? Yep. <laughs> How did this devolve into you pitching rehashes of old 90s shows? I mean, Whatever. It's... How cool would that be? A building full of bad guys just <laughs> raining blood and guts all over the ground below him. I love the fact that Dalila White at some point was like, I have to be cool in this show. Figure out a way for me to be cool. And then they they give him like the 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 bone of Stefan Urkel every now and then. So (laughs) he gets to be cool. How do we justify that Laura could love Urkel? Well maybe she just hangs around waiting for the one day a year he becomes Stefan. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Like this is amazing. Family Matters. Um, Family Matters needs like a hardcover book breakdown of the history of it. I, I think it's amazing. It, um, it, it would be so cool. Just to end it with like bad guys dying and just the did I do that? <laughs> and then you get the you know the the end credit, the Vindabana. 90s role graphic. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the Fast and Furious 9 is when they're just going to start mining 90 shows and like putting actors on them when they can't figure out what the next move is. Oh, my God. They're like, Tracy Gold's not doing anything this year. Oh, man. man, You, you are, like, firing off old synapses in my brain. Wait, <laughs> Jeff Galili and good at that. Tracy Gold? Like, have mercy. Tracy <laughs> oh, Gold. Oh, have mercy leads to John Stamos. Okay, so Uncle Jesse. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Here we go. Uncle Jesse and Stefan Urkel are. (laughs) Oh, man. That's that's like the. That's a behemoth. That is a kaiju building (laughs) of a country. Ooh. Okay, so you need two hemispheres to run. Let's see. So we got the kaiju. Are you taking me? (laughs) You You need two hemispheres. (laughs) <laughs> to run a Jaeger, right? So America's out of Jaeger pilots. The only two that could do no. the cerebral handshake no. are Urkel <laughs> and Uncle Jesse. Okay. There it is. There we go. Yeah. So it's like an old lion, young lion. <laughs> so yeah. yes. But you find out that. at the end that Danny Tanner <laughs> is the one who opened the rift in the Pacific Ocean. Oh, no. Him and Carl Winslow? Yes! No, Balky. <laughs> Balky from Perfect Strangers. Balky, oh, and Danny no. Tanner. For so you're, you're just trying to make like the ninth, like the Thank God It's Friday Avengers? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah could you imagine <laughs> yeah. like step by yeah. step presented by Marvel? 
<laughs> yes. Wow. I, I can't ever let you go to Netflix. Don't, don't make that a reality. It'll be a nightmare for the world. <laughs> but it would be beautiful for me. Go in there talking about TGI Friday Avengers, and I'll hand you $10 million in the typewriter. Not even a computer, a typewriter. Just a typewriter. Just make it happen. Yep. Do it now. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I just want to show that it's so 90s that at the end, somebody says, sit, Ubu, sit. There you go. You know, speaking of, speaking of 90s, um, about a year ago, I bumped into Tiffany Amber Thiessen, just like, ouch. Oh. And I didn't realize that I still had a crush on Kelly Kapowski. <laughs> I was going to say, dude, Kelly Kapowski? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize. I, I, just, just, I wasn't prepared for what happened to my soul. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> you want to hear how meta that goes? Mm. My wife, not kidding, mm. looks like Kelly Kapowski. Oh, that's awesome. Is and I didn't put it together till I saw a picture of Tiffany Thiessen and looked at my wife's facial structure and was like, I married Kelly Kapowski. Yeah, I mean, that's going to happen to people, you know? Like, Kelly Kapowski <laughs> was a turning point for a lot of people. She really was. <laughs> like, you know, it was, it, was, it was a lot. Like, cause about the time that Saved by the Hell was happening, like, I was like, you know, like, finishing up, like, puberty, you know what I mean? Like, I was clearly, like, you know, like, hey, I think I'm going to do this dude thing now. <laughs> and right. Suspenders and bare midriffs, oh, don't get me started. Right, and it's um, like, yeah, you hit that point where you're like, oh, girls aren't gross. And then those shows hit, and you're like, oh, she was girls really aren't gross. Dude, she was okay. So, my 90s was spent with fictional crushes in my head. I had a Buffy the Vampire Slayer Christy Swanson poster in my room. Yeah, yeah. And next to my X-Men posters, next to my Crow posters, next to my Pantera and Deftones and all these posters, enshrined in the middle of all that, dude, bro, holy crap, this is what testosterone is, I'm going to punch something. All that stuff was on my wall, and in the middle was just a picture of Christy Swanson. And we had a full-on relationship in my brain. Well, she was gorgeous. I mean, probably still is. I, I, I haven't seen her in anything recently, but, man, yeah, like, um, Christy Swanson was, like, irrationally pretty, you know. Uh, I remember back in the Buffy day, I think I still was in the middle of my big Jennifer Connelly crush at the time. So, oh. I could, uh, you know, let that go. Um, so you make comments like, "Now that's a labyrinth." That no, <laughs> yeah, like, 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 oh. like those, like, yeah, like you never really let that go. Like, so when I met Tiffany, she was really cool. Um, uh, she was just kind of out, like in Santa Monica, doing whatever like people do. Um, but she was super friendly and kind of hip and kind of like everything you'd want someone like that to be, you know. Like, mm-hmm. you'd, like, want her to be kind of, like, cool, and she was kind of cool. That was neat. I mean, most of the time when I've met people, either through work or just out, they've been, you know, pretty awesome. Uh, I saw Ray Liotta once and <gasps> got terrified and crossed the street because he looked like he was getting ready to kill someone or just had killed someone. Um, <laughs> and I just had, like, good, really good fellas flashbacks, like, whoa. But, yeah, like, uh, you know, people are people, ultimately. And Use the dishwasher, Karen. Yeah. If two people like people, then generally you get a decent experience. I mean, you always get like a couple, you know, couple jerks every now and then. But uh, what I found from working in Hollywood that it's, it's still a job. I mean, a lot of people make tremendous amounts of money 
um, to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it's a job, you know, and you, and you do your work and you try to be a professional. And most people are fairly level-headed. Uh, and you learn quickly that if you're not level-headed, you're not going to go that far because you're going to start losing people money being crazy. So to all you folks yeah. out there, you know, don't believe everything you read in the tabloids. Be professional. Be on time. Do your work good. Everything else will work itself out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but I mean, and, and it is, it's like with everything. I know that it's super glamorized, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's just like anything else. Like people are like, oh, I had a bad experience with an actor. And it's like, yeah, but I had a bad experience with the guy at Taco Bell. Right. He was just right. as douchey. He's just not famous. He, he was on Firefly. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He just, <laughs> Captain. I had to call that one back. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's. I'm really excited to be able to do the kind of work that I do. It's Heck a yeah, lot of fun uh, to kind of play around in the same sphere that you grew up really admiring. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of pleased where things are. Uh, it's 9.40 for me, guys, so I have to get out yeah. here. Yeah, you're good, dude. Go do Absolutely. some stuff. But I appreciate uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you. This has been really great. No problem. Dude, it has it's been, been a blast, blast, man. Yeah. Cool. I can't wait to... Uh, Hopefully, get to read Golgotha. The story sounds immersive and entertaining. Yeah, check out Golgotha. Postal's on shelves now. I think Romulus Four yeah. will be out in maybe like a month or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Brian with a Y. Brian Edward Hill. That's at Brian Edward Hill. Listen mm-hmm. me on Twitter. Probably the best way to reach me. I don't really do Facebook that much. Um, a lot of people add me to Facebook and I add people, but I'm not. That communicative Twitter is probably the best way to find me on the social media sphere. Uh, and yeah, so thank you guys for having me and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I will talk to you guys soon. All right, man. Awesome. You too. Awesome. awesome. Right. See ya. What up? What's up, man? Nothing. That might have been the <laughs> funnest hour and a half I've had in a long time. That was. It was good. A lot of fun. So, guys, that was <laughs> Brian Edward Hill. Um, yes. Super funny, super talented, super open uh, guy. Yes. Very, very. That uh, that was that was a blast. I love when they say I'll see you soon. I do keep in touch with people, so you know, you guys can yeah. follow us on social media if you ever want us to have someone back. I mean, mm-hmm. j- just let us know. No, we we love talking to these people. It's more about just getting to know them and. You know, just having fun, like, you know, coming up with the TGIF Avengers. That was, Sorry. yeah, that was amazing. That but um, just a sneak preview, guys. Uh, this week, we have Eric Larson, holy crap, from Image mm. Comics, um, creator of Savage Dragon. For those of you who might not be in the know, it is probably one of the longest-running yeah. Uh, it is the longest-running Image comic um, mm-hmm. right now. Uh, we're going to have him on and get real down deep into it, uh, talk to him about some of the things he wants to talk about. That one's going to be a real episode, uh, real as in talking about deeper issues than just us admiring him for the amazing legacy uh-huh. of his work. Yeah. Uh, did get an invite uh, for the Mutant Football League guys again, so we'll be doing another exclusive yeah. Talking with them and the whole creative team this time. Yes, right? uh, Michael Mendheim yeah. reached out from the Ukraine, or uh, he'll be in the Ukraine um, 
in about mid-April and wanted to come back on with us, so we'll have that. And, I mean, I've got more guests lined up in the shoot. I did get a cool follower the other day, Steps. I got Ben oh. Bailey yesterday, followed me wow. on Twitter. That is the cash cab guy. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> he just randomly followed you on Twitter? Yes, I was talking to somebody, uh, probably Brett Booth, um, who is an amazing artist working on the Teen Titan books right now, and he is on the line. He said he's got some deadlines to meet, and then afterward he'd be more than willing to give us uh, some of his time, so look for that in the future too. But, yeah, I'm talking to him about something, and I get the little notification, and it said Ben Bailey followed you. And I look it up, and I'm like, blue check mark, and then I saw the face and was like... Okay, so the cast yeah. cap guy. <laughs> the cast cap guy found me. And his stand up is amazing. He's a funny dude outside of even outside mm-hmm. of that yes. show. Nice. He's very, very funny. So I know, you know, we've been down a couple weeks. Um, life happens. Yeah. And but we are back on track. We've got some cool guests lined up in the shoot. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really good to be able to sit down with you again, my good friend. Sure. And yeah interview somebody with really cool stories um mm-hmm. i love Dolph lundgren yes i'm gonna watch the special or the russian specialist tonight look i have to see right this. being a kid coming out of the 80s uh-huh. um Dolph lundgren is forever burned in my mind as both ivan drogo mm-hmm. and he-man he is He-Man. my only outside of Funimation He-Man I've ever known. I don't care what people say about that movie. Frank Langella as Skeletor was amazing. Mm-hmm. And Dolph Lundgren <laughs> played the heck out of He-Man. Courtney Cox's awkward starting out acting aside, that movie is amazing. <laughs> I'll have to look that one up, too, because I've never watched that either. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. No. I will look it up. It's so good. Is it just a live-action He-Man movie? Yeah, but it takes place on Earth. Weird. Yeah, there's this whole, like, trans-dimensional thing. Instead of an Orko character, they have this really weird, um, covered-in-hair, melting hobbit face makeup-looking thing. Awesome. And he comes up with a key, and the key is basically like a cylindrical 80s synthesizer. Um, Sweet. And when you play a certain tone, it opens dimensions, and they end up on our dimension. And it's like He-Man, Tila, Man-at-Arms, and He-Man come through with whatever the weird thing's name is. And it's all about, like, Skeletor hires all these mercenaries. So, like, Beast Man's in it, and... Yeah. And they get sent to Earth to track it down, and there's an epic fight between He-Man and Skeletor at the end. It's amazing, and like I said, I'm pretty sure it's Frank Langella played Skeletor in that, and uh-huh. he played the crap out of Skeletor. Much cooler voice than the one from the cartoon. Um, he doesn't sound like a hyena with his nuts in a vice. I am Skeletor. Yeah, he doesn't sound like that. And I love that voice yeah. actor, but that gets a little grating over the course of a series. Um, you see Robot Chicken where they're all driving in the car. <laughs> Feel the wrath of Skeletor's breakfast burrito. Breakfast burrito. <laughs> yes. Roll down the windows. Roll down the windows. <laughs> but yeah, like, so Dolph Lundgren, man, like, I loved him in The Expendables, but the child that will always be 
running around in my brain. Um, yeah. He is He-Man and Ivan Drogo to me. The, the only Drogo that matters. Uh, sorry, Momoa fans, but hey, Ivan Drogo came first, and he didn't get killed at his own wedding. So. True. True. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we, we came back in a big way. We got a, a double episode for you. We're going on two hours here. So I hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, I know I did. It's fun to be back and to sit and record, get back in the swing of things, and get it going. I know. I missed you, man. I know. Legitimately. I feel like I've been just lost out here in the Oklahoma news. Well, once again, we are found. So that does it for this week on the Happy Haven. Um, like I said, we got some big stuff coming up, so stay tuned. Tell your friends it's free. Write us some reviews yeah. on iTunes so that Absolutely we can get free. yeah, so we can get pushed to more people um, on iTunes. Every good review uh, gets us into the ears of more people, and more of your friends can talk about the wacky antics of the two Haven boys. <laughs> I just made that's it like sound a, like the end, like a, uh, end of a deuce yeah, of the party boys from back in the day. Yeah, there you go. That's what the boys going to get into this week? Cue <laughs> creepy banjo music. Anyway. All right, guys. We'll talk to you next week. It's been fun. Yep. Remember, Happy Haven, making the world a better place, one nerd at a time. And we'll catch you uh, later on this week. Like I said, we've got Eric yeah. Larson. Woohoo! All right, guys. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.